So I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me here. Uh, and I get to talk about my favorite topic, <laughs> functional hand views in children with unilateral cerebral palsy. So I'll see if I get this technicalities working. No. <laughs> Doesn't go back or forth. So this way, this is where I come from. Just want to put me, myself on, my, on the map. This is Europe, obviously. Sweden is up here. In case you haven't been to Sweden, you're very welcome. And especially you're welcome to visit us in June next year where we have the International Cerebral Palsy Conference. It will take place in Stockholm, right there. Hope to see you then. Now this is not gonna work. So I work at the Karolinska Institute, as Melinda already said. That's the Lindgren Children's Hospital because I also do some clinical work there. And this is the hospital. And it's a very nice place, we thought, when it was newly renovated 15 years ago. But it's not far as nice as this place, of course. <laughs> anyway, the whole thinking about, about uh, the concept about assisting hand function and functional use of the hands had a starting point when I did my PhD now a long time ago and it was about hand function in children with brachial plexus palsies or children with hemiplegic cerebral palsy and what they have in common is that they have one well-functioning hand and one hand that is affected in different to different degrees uh, and describing hand function for these kids was was not so easy, and what I found at that time, like 10 years, 12, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, uh, was that for children with cerebral palsy hemiplegia, unilateral cerebral palsy, uh, who are about 30, between 30 and 40 percent of the total population of children with cerebral palsy, uh, descriptions when you read in the literature, or at that time, 10 years ago especially, was very much focusing on arm hand positions, like describing the arm hand position as being adducted in the shoulder, internally rotated, forearm elbow flexed, forearm pronated, wrist flexed, ulnary deviated, finger flexion, thumb in palm position, you know this, classic. And this is very often found in the literature. Also, they sometimes describe these so-called positive signs of, of spasticity of hypertone, about mirror movements, uh, or negative signs of weakness and decreased tactile sensibility, for example. And lately, there has been a lot written about the learned non-use or developmental non-use behavior. Uh, I, is, are these terms things you are familiar with, I suppose? You are mostly therapists in here. So we don't need to go into that. But functional aspects of hand function, that was really not described. Uh, and when we think about bimanual performance and we think about daily life tasks, for most tasks, almost all tasks in our daily life, we need to use our two hands together. So bimanual performance would be the most important thing to describe for these children. Uh, also, when we look at what assessments we had out there, 
we could find many assessments that was used for children with unilateral cerebral palsy. For example, tests of speed and dexterity, tests describing different types of grasps or movement patterns or positions of the wrist and fingers, range of motion, strength, plasticity, and some tests that measure developmental milestones. For example, how many blocks can a kid stack on top of each other at different ages and such things. What all of these tests have in common is that they measure one hand at a time. So you measure the affected hand and you compare it to the well-functioning hand, but what it can do on its own, one hand at a time. So there were also some tests where two hands were used together, uh, but they were, for example, tests where you string beads or you cut on a line. But these tests actually measure how, how many beads can you put on this string in one minute or how accurately can you cut. It doesn't tell us anything about how these two hands actually collaborate, work together. So again, the functional aspects were really missing. I'm sorry. Just trying to, yeah, so, so how are the two hands used together? What, what, what variables can describe the use of the affected hand together with the well-functioning hand? What are the demands of a functional assisting hand? So this is what I intend to talk about today. And I would like to discuss a little bit about the concept of functional hand use in children with unilateral cerebral palsy, about the assisting hand assessment and how it can be used to guide intervention, and about the difference between hand function capacity and performance. And I want to start with showing you a little video of a boy, Victor. He is 10 years old. And I want you to look at his right hand and how he's using his right hand. And whether you think he's doing well or if you think he is using his right hand in a functional way. Some of you have seen this video already, I think, when you took the AHA course. What do you think? He's using his right hand a lot, isn't he? So is this a functional way of using the hemiplegic hand? Very soon, I want you to look very carefully what he's doing, because the therapist tells, there's no sound on here, but the therapist tells him that he can build however he likes to do it, and he can use, do it as he usually would do it. Boop. Did you see what happened? Did you notice the switch? So what happened? Now he's using his left hand. He's taking his barefoot today. <laughs> exactly. Now, which way was the most functional way of building that toy? Was it when he was using his right hand to, to grasp, to place on top of each other? 
or was it when he was using his right hand to hold onto the car and grasp from the table with the other hand and building with the other hand? Yes. Even though he is, he has a pretty mild involvement of his hand, doesn't he? And he can do all these things. He can grasp from the table and he wants to show his therapist what he can do because he's been in therapy for all his life and he knows what therapist asks. Use your right hand, use your right hand, use your right hand. But actually what we need to acknowledge is what is the most functional way of using this hemiplegic hand? Because it wasn't very functional, this. He was doing much better using the hand as an assist. So functional hand use. Functional is one of these words that I think we have some different definitions of. So what I mean with the functional hand use is that the hand and arm is used in a manner that makes activity performance effective, successful, and done with minimal effort. That's functional to me. So we had to start to look at how are two hands really used together and what is important? What can make this assisting hand a functional assisting hand? So sometimes we use our two hands simultaneously and symmetrically, like when clapping hands or carrying bags or something. But that's pretty seldom we do such activities. More, much more often, the two hands do different things, but simultaneously. And when we perform tasks, by manual tasks, each hand adopts a different but complementary role. So the two hands have two different roles. And the dominant hand manipulates more and is quicker. And the non-dominant hand has more of a stabilizing role. And this is true for, for anybody. We can easily move our hands. I can easily move my hands and fingers easily, but I still very much prefer my right hand. I cannot brush my teeth with my left hand. That's even though it's pretty simple, it's not possible for me to do it well. So, and this role differentiation, it becomes much more accentuated uh, for people with a unilateral disability, obviously. And for children who have a unilateral disability, the well-functioning hand will always be preferred for, for tasks that you can do with one hand. And that's pretty, uh, can't find the word for the minute. <laughs> natural, isn't it? It should be. And they should, of course, then use their well-functioning hands for things that can be done with one hand. But what constitutes a functional assisting hand? What are the demands of that hand? That if, if an assisting hand does not really need to be writing letters, right? And it doesn't have to be quite as quick, do the very speedy things or the very accurate when you need to do very accurate things, of course you use your more well-functioning hand. But how can we describe a functional, a good working assisting hand? And I think that these questions we need to, to, to ask ourselves for each individual, what is a functional assisting hand for this person? How can we describe this person's typical assisting hand use? <coughs> how can we identify how functional it is, have a measure on how, 
how well it works together with the other hand, and how can we identify the next step to target to improve functional hand use. And I may suggest that aha uh -huh, might be a way to do this. So the aha, the assisting hand <coughs> assessment, the purpose of this test is to measure and to describe the efficiency, the effectiveness with which a child with unilateral disability actually uses his affected hand in bimanual activity performance. This test has been, was developed first in 2003 or published. The first publication was in 2003 and the red marked articles are articles about validity, internal construct validity, and the blue marked are about reliability. And we, I'm very happy to say that we now have, oh, can't do that, have to do the pointing here. A very newly accepted article with a new version of the AHA, uh, and it will be out soon in the Development of Medicine and <coughs> Child Neurology. And we have one article in manuscript, also very soon ready to be sent in about the development of the assisting hand assessment for adolescents up to 18 years. So soon we can cover the age from 18 months to 18 years. And we have the mini aha. And you know the person <laughs> who developed the mini aha. Uh, so I'm going to talk about the aha as, as one test, but I mean both of these versions of the test, actually. So when we do the assisting hand assessment, uh, we have the test procedure that we start with an activity that does demand the use of both hands without us having to say, use the right hand or use the right hand. The, the toys that we have in this test kit all make you use two hands if you can. You need to use two hands. So for the mini aha, we have these mm. toys that are appropriate for the younger children, like rattles and a spoon and a, a cup and very exciting toys that really kids really want to play with and they enjoy it. They have fun doing this test situation. The little older kids from, from 18 months and up, we have another set of toys that is more appropriate for them. For the children from six years of age, we have board games where they actually use almost the same objects, but it's put in a more age-appropriate context. And for the adolescents, we have a new board game that is more interesting for, for teenagers and adults, actually. It's more like a, it's called Go with the Flow, and the flow spelled flu, <laughs> like, like ice flakes, right? <laughs> it's very nice, very nice game. I think you will enjoy it. So what these, what these activities do for us uh, is that it lets us observe bimanual hand use. And the children and teenagers, they, they have fun, they play, and they use their hand in the way they usually do it. That's the whole point of having an activity that makes them engaged. We, we video record this play session, and afterwards we do the scoring. And we have 20 items in the new AHA version 5, the kids' AHA, and we have 20 other items in the mini AHA. And 
Most of them are similar, but not all. So in the Kids Sahar, we have these 20 items, and they are grouped together in different groups. We have the general usage items, and that is about how quick do they initiate use of that affected hand, how much do they use it. If you, if you have an, an, this is my affected hand, and I have an object on this side, do I choose to handle that object with my closest hand, or do I cross over and use my more well-functioning hand? Choose, do I choose the closest hand? We have arm use items. Do I use my arm to stabilize objects with a way to support against the body or against the table? Do I reach with this arm? Do, how much do I do the movements and vary the movements? How do, do I grasp and release objects? Do I grasp objects from the table or from my affected hand or in some other way? These are all about grasping and releasing these items. These items are more, about more fine motor adjustments, like, like uh, do I regulate my grip force? Do I do in-hand manipulation and finger movements, isolated finger movements? How is the coordination between the two hands? And how is the general pace flow in bimanual performance? So all of these items are scored on a four-point rating scale, where four means effective, sort of typical performance. A three is almost typical performance. It's somewhat effective. A two means ineffective. There we have a problem. And a one is does not do this. It does not use the hand in this, in this item. So I'll show you quickly how we do the scoring of this test. So this is Ebba. And she's two and a half years old. And you should look at her left hand. And there you see that she's holding actively, but grips sometimes slip. So it's not so stable in the grip. So that is scored a two. And sometimes she's very slow initiating use with that hand. So actually taken together, this becomes a three. And she uses few types of grasps, and she does not take new holds. She does not readjust her grasp, even though this is not totally effective. So she scored two on those two items. And when she grasps a new item, she never grasps with her left hand directly from the table, but she grasps with her well-functioning hand and then with her hemiplegic hand. So that is scored a two on grasps, and the same with releasing. She doesn't release directly to the table, but to her better hand. So this is how we score. This was just one minute of play. We usually have to look at 10 or 20 minutes of play with many different items, many different objects, to be able to score uh, what is the most typical way for this child to use her hand. Oh. Okay, so I'll also show you a little bit about how we score one single item, grasps. Grasps is one of these test components that you find in almost every test of hand function. But they are very different things that we measure. Like in Melbourne assessment, we look at what kind of objects can they grasp? How do you score that? You score if they can grasp a, a small bead and a, a bigger crayon and, and a cube, right? Can or cannot grasp? Or what, what is the? Like sort of the range of movement. 
Yeah. Exactly. But in the AHA, we have another way of, of looking at grasping. So for, to score a four, you have to grasp directly, most often have to grasp from the table. So this little boy, you should look at his right hand, and here he grasps from the table. You can see that he has a mild involvement, but he chooses to use his right hand to grasp directly from the table. So he scored a four on grasps. This is an example of a three for a boy who actually most often grasps from the table, but with some difficulty, some delay, exaggerating opening of the hand. But he still grasps from the table. Or this little boy. Oh, what happened here? <laughs> Stop. This little boy, he grasps from his dominant hand. So he scored a two. And this little girl too. And this is very typical, the way very many children do grasp from their dominant hand. And it looks quite smooth and easy for some of them, but it's still that they choose to, to grasp, not from the table, occasionally from the table. <laughs> or this little boy who does not use grasp, he stabilizes using weight. So he scored a one, or this girl, she tries to grasp, but it's really hard for her, so she scored a one on grasps. So, yeah, I think this is a functional way of looking at grasping. How are they grasping? When we developed this assisting hand assessment and all, all the different scales we have, uh, we used Rush measurement model of analysis and when we use Raj analysis, you are to think about the concept of the test. You are the concept of what you're measuring as a line. And in this case, oh, sorry, this is not my latest version. Ooh, see how this ends up. <laughs> anyway, okay. We are measuring the usefulness of the assisting hand. Mm. Uh, and we want to place people along this line from less able persons at this end to more able persons at this end. And this is very nice that the most tests do this, but what the Rush really adds is that it does mesh also gives us the difficulty of the test items from more easy to more difficult. And I'll, they, it does so from, from the assumptions that are pretty simple and logical that all persons are more likely to pass easy than difficult items, and that items are more likely to be passed by persons of high ability than persons of low ability. That is quite simple. And what it does for us, ah, oh, let's skip this one then, was just, this is the Rush analysis. Results that are so interesting, aren't they? <laughs> so these are all the persons and their ability measures from persons who have a low ability to persons who have a high ability. And these are our 20 test items and how difficult they are from more difficult to more easy. And this is the 
interesting hierarchical order of our test items. So for example, holds, just holding something is really, really easy. Most children can hold on to something that is placed in their hand. Or stabilizing using the arm as a way to support, that's also very easy. Stabilizing using grasp is a whole lot more difficult. Grasping, grasping and scoring a four on grasp, like score grasp from the table is really, really hard for children with unilateral disability. And to do in-hand manipulation, very, very few can do that. So that's the most difficult item. Now this hierarchical order, when we first uh, found this out, we really thought it was interesting and, and thrilling because it did give us an idea and it did fit our clinical knowledge about how what could be difficult and what could be hard, uh, uh, easy. And it gave us a way to think about development of hand function, of assisting hand function. Because we think that this order reflects a difficulty order of different actions that people do with their affected hand. And it's sort of development, but not, of course, typical development, but development order of actions <coughs> for the assisting hand. So the starting point, it's not like development that we think about in, in general, that you first you have to sit before you can crawl, before you can walk. Things have to take this order, and you have to start with sitting. That's not the case with this developmental order, because the starting point depends on the severity of the impairment. But once you have a starting point, you can look at what is the next thing that this person needs to be more efficient doing. And if you have somebody who really scores very low on the AHA, who, for example, doesn't use the hand much at all, who scores once on most of the items, then if you think, what is this that this person needs to learn next? And that would be maybe to be more efficient in stabilizing, using weight to support, or uh, holding more efficiently. And you shouldn't start what we often do as therapists with grasping, releasing, having people grasp, release, because that is really, really hard. And it will not be useful for this person. Uh, he will never do it in real life. So we need to adapt our thinking to what is the next step. Uh, and we know that learning takes place when the ability of the person and difficulty of the tasks are well matched. And we think that we can use the AHA to identify the next ability level in treatment. Can't we, Sue? The mini AHA you've been using a lot like that. Hmm? Okay. So I just want to quickly show you these are the items of the of the small and school kids aha. And these are the items of the mini aha. The black marked items are original for, for each specific scale. And the colored items have another one that is exactly the same, like this. You see that the hierarchical order is a little bit different, but in general, it fits pretty well. Holds is absolutely the most easy thing for both scales, and manipulation of different kinds is the most difficult. So, 
how can we now use this information from the hierarchies, from the Raj analysis, uh, with, an, with a specific individual child? Well, we have a score form that has two sheets, one when you insert your data and one when you can look at the hierarchical order. We can look at the demonstration score form. No, no. <laughs> we should be able to. Okay, I'm sorry about that. It does work when it's not connected to the projector. There's a link. So what it tells you is that on the second sheet of the score form, we have the items ordered in their hierarchical order. And when the child is scored a four or a three, uh, the, the numbers turn green on this ordered sheet. And when it's scored a two or a one, which is ineffective, it's, it's turned red. So you can easily see that the more easy items on top are often green, and the more somewhere there is like a, a border where it starts becoming more red. Maybe not strictly green to red, maybe there's a little bit of a mix in the middle. But basically, we have this order that the, the easier things are green and the more difficult ones are red. So here you can see exactly which item that starts to turn red, and they are probably the ones that are the ones that this child needs to improve next. That is the next difficulty level for this child. Uh, so with the AHA, we can describe how individuals with unilateral CP actually use their affected hand to perform bimanual tasks. And we can also uh, look at descriptors. We can describe how efficiently children use their hand. But we can also look at all the data on the group level to see, to, to, to try to find descriptors that can be useful when you describe a child's assisting hand function. So I looked at a data set I had with 362 assessments, and it was a little bit more of, of uh, I can't read from here really. Well, I think it was a little bit fewer boys, wasn't it? Ah, never mind. It was, sorry? A few more boys and a few more right side affected. Uh, and these children were between 18 months and 12 years of age. And we looked at relationship to age, and there was actually no relationship to age here. We have children who are very young, who have a score very high and score very low, and we have older children that score both high and low very low correlation coefficient that was significant, so it's true. Uh, yes, this is what I want to tell you. So I did choose one item, flow in bimanual performance, which is like a summary of the whole test. And I looked at this item, what the children in this group, how they were scoring on flow. And if you score a four on flow, it means that the, the hemiplegia does not affect bimanual performance. If you score a three on flow, it means that bimanual performance is mildly affected. A two means moderately affected, that is that it takes increased effort, it is a bit slower, or it's difficult to use the assisting hand. 
And if you scored a one, it means that bimanual performance is severely affected. And basically, bimanual performance cannot be done. So this is how this group of children were distributed on these four levels. So you see the big majority scored a two. They have difficulties with bimanual performance, but they were sort of independent, but with much more effort and difficulty. Also, quite a few scored a three. Very few scored a, a four on, bi on, on flow in bimanual performance. And that is because this is a clinical sample of children. And the children who have a very mild hemiparesis seldom come to our clinic. And we had a few who scored a one also. But let's look a little closer at this and see how, how, the, how we can describe the assisting hand use. Because in this graph, you see the mean score of all the items for the 63 children who scored a one on flow and bimanual performance. And you see here, if the mean would have been a two, you would be up, up to the two here, this is a three and this is a four. So what you easily see from this graph, you see nothing, sorry, is that the very most easy items are scored a little bit higher, but basically they have quite big problems with all the items. So if we are to look closer at this, this means that for children in this level, they do not initiate use often, or they initiate use of that hand with very big delay. And they may be able to hold an object that is placed in the hand by somebody else to keep hold, but they don't place objects in the hand on their own. And they may use their hand to stabilize some objects as a way to support. This is very typical for this group of children. And now you will see a totally different profile for children who score a two on by flow in bimanual performance. You see that they can do many things, and especially the more easy items they score high on, and then it diminished. And so these children, they do initiate use, but with some delay. The, the well-functioning hand is there quicker than the other hand. They do grasp from the dominant hand, not from the table. They have difficulty stabilizing using a grasp, and they <coughs> seldom reach with that hand. They reach with their more well-functioning hand, and then they handle objects <coughs> close to their body. And they often orient objects a bit inefficiently, like what you can see on this picture. Now, children who score a three on flow in bimanual performance, they have a even more diff different profile, right? And they actually only have problems with the very difficult items on top. So you can say that these children initiate use quite quickly. Uh, still, the well-functioning hand is often there quicker, but the other one comes in quickly. Object stabilization is somewhat effective. Uh, they often reach with a good range. They have a variation of grasps, and they often Re still re grasp from the dominant hand, not from the table. And children who score a four only have difficulties with the most difficult items. So they may actually grasp directly from the table most often. Uh, they often readjust their grasp. And they can do a little bit of in-hand manipulation, although often a little bit clumsy. 
So this is a way that we can use to describe groups of children. Um, so we can actually, from this, this uh, information, also find descriptors that are very typical for children with unilateral dis uh, hemiplegia. We can say that they grasp from the dominant hand most often, rather than from the table, that they release to their dominant hand, that they use their dominant hand to adjust objects, rather than to do in-hand manipulation, that they initiate use, but with a little bit of delay or more delay. They reach for objects with the dominant hand and they pick up objects on their affected side by crossing over with their well-functioning hand. So how functional are these behaviors? Uh, okay, so grasping from the dominant hand rather from the table, is that functional? Yeah, depends, of course, on, on your ability, but it's often much easier, much quicker, much more efficient for, for them to grasp from the table, uh, from, the, from the dominant hand than from the table, sorry. And releasing to the dominant hand rather than to the table, is that functional? Yeah, for, for most of them, releasing to the dominant hand be may be much more functional. It's often done quickly and easily. You hardly see that they do this, but actually they don't release to the table. So what are we training? What are we doing in intervention? We are really trying to make them grasp with their affected hand and release with their affected hand. That's what we, at least I, used to do all of the time, right? Of course, you need to know how to do that, and you need to know that you can do it when you need to. But maybe it's not the most functional way. Maybe we can rethink a little bit about that. And the last one, picking up objects placed on the affected hand side of the body with the dominant hand, how functional is that? Well, it is a compensation for sure but it's very difficult to, to use your closest hand when you have to externally rotate and grasp directly from the table. So most children do cross over and it's a good compensation. Now, there are some other aspects on this, functional use of the two hands together, because it, I think it does really depend a lot on the severity level of the severity of the impairment, what is functional or not. So, Take, for example, grasp. We talked a lot about it already. But for somebody who has a very mild hemiplegia, it is actually functional to pick up from the table. But for somebody who has a more moderate hemiplegia, it's much more functional to pick up with the well-functioning hand and there, then grasp. And for somebody who has a very severe hemiplegia, it's not functional to grasp at all. It's more functional to stabilize the objects using weight to support because grasping is far too difficult. So all of these things has to be put in the perspective of the severity of the impairment. And that's where we as therapists need to be able to, to analyze what this individual child should do, how this child should use their hand in a functional way. It also depends on what kind of object you are handling. 
these are pictures taken during, during an aha assessment with the same little boy, and he sometimes uses his hands as a weight to stabilize objects, like the paper here and the little mouse. But some things he needs to use his hand, his grasp, to be able to, to play these symbols together. He needs to hold each of them in each hand. So he, you can see that he struggles a bit to do it, but he can do it. And here he tears the paper, and then he has to use the grip with both hands. So it's really good to be able to see in which activities do you need to do what to make it functional. And this is a video of a little French boy <coughs> who is doing the AHA assessment. I'm sorry, you can't, there's no sound on here. Because it's beautiful with the French. <laughs> uh, but you see he has a right side hemiplegia. And he's now saying something like, I can't get this off. How shall I do this? And it doesn't come to his mind that he could bring in the other hand to help. And now he's going to put one of these marbles in the bottle and he immediately realizes that he needs, he can't do that with one hand. So he says, I can't do this. And she says, use your other hand too. So he did. <laughs> but then again, it doesn't, it's not just in his mind that he can use that hand. But when he's told to do it, he does bring it in, eventually. Okay, so this is how this child also behaves in, in daily life. He actually cannot do bimanual tasks. Oh, that hurts. <laughs> and still he doesn't try to use his right hand. Huh? How am I doing time-wise? Not so good. Okay, so let's look at this little boy when he does the Melbourne assessment. He's asked to use his hand to point to this. It's not the correct items you're using, is it? He's grasping the crayon or, or the marker. He's releasing. <coughs> See what this guy can do. Isn't it amazing? Look at this. He can grasp that little pellet easily, rather easily. Good precision. Release it. So what is going on here? <laughs> I think this, this video is so nice because it really illustrates 
the difference between capacity and performance. And of course, these are two very different things. And the capacity sort of indicates the ceiling, but the difference between capacity and performance deserves a lot of attention. And if the best capacity is not used, it could have different reasons, of course. Maybe it's not just good enough to be useful functionally. That's one thing. Then you have to increase your capacity before you can use it, of course. Uh, but it's also that maybe they just haven't learned that they have this capacity or something else is disturbing this capacity. I actually think that for this little boy it was a lot of mirror movement that did disturb him. So he couldn't use his good hand in a good way because he, he had so much mirror movements disturbing the good hand even. Uh, but anyway, look at both capacity and performance and see when you guide to guide the treatment. It can be really important. And I think, again, that we need to not ask children to use their best capacity all the time, because that's really, that's too tiring. It, it takes too much energy and too much time, <coughs> because it's slower. But it's functional to use the hemiplegic hand for actions it can do well, and to use a well-functioning hand when it's easier and more effective. And this is something that I think we therapists need to focus more on than we've done earlier, at least. So we uh, therapists should help children to find the most functional way to use their affected hand and to make it specific and, and explain to parents that they don't, they don't, because they often also want to help the child to become better and say, use your hemi hand, use your hemi hand, use your hemi hand. But to, to show parents in what way they can use their hemiplegic hand in a functional way is a big mission for us, I think, and a challenge. Yes, that's what I said. Okay, so when I say this, some people say that I, I don't think that children should have treatment, intervention. But of course I think children should have intervention. I think it's a human right for them to, to actually get help to reach the best possible capacity. But a functional assisting hand also needs to be defined from the individual's condition to be relevant. And a functional assisting hand is the most important aspect of hand function for children with unilateral disability. So I think that the, both the AHA and the mini-AHA can serve as tools to measure, to give a measure on effectiveness of use of the assisting hand, and it can be used to identify appropriate challenges to make model learning possible, and it can be used to assist to guide treatment to improve the functional use of the assisting hand. So, of course, joint alignment, muscle tone, weakness, all of these things are really important and we need to address them. But we must look beyond these factors and the functional use of the hands in everyday tasks should be in focus. And this can guide interventions to use both hands together successfully. Thanks to all my AHA collaborators, which two of them are really Australians from Melbourne. <laughs>
and thank you for listening. worked with older children with this uh, and for them it has been actually an eye-opener to to realize that this happens at all because they were not aware of it they're so used to how they were their own condition of course but we have also tried to to make them do things with I mean the most disturbing thing is actually that the when they work with their affected hand the good hand is doing things that they so if, if they concentrate very much on, for example, keeping hold of something in that good hand while opening the other hand, they, they can actually learn that in some situations, they, on a cognitive level, they need to think about that hand. And then they can manage to suppress these mirror movements. Some of them, but not all of them. And I haven't had that many, I must say. <laughs> mm -hmm. We're going both ways, but the, but the idea is that the, if they think about uh, the, the, the biggest problem is actually when the good hand is disturbed, because that really makes them not use the hand at all. So that's what we have focused mostly on, but basically to be aware of that this happens, and that they, if they concentrate, they can suppress it, some of them. Yeah, and, and you actually need to practice a lot yes. to get good at something. Yes, and, and probably the task, not just grasping, releasing no, 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 such things, because that doesn't transfer. That doesn't translate. Translate, but, no. But you still have to practice some of those tasks that are kind of slow sometimes to start with, mm -hmm. to get better at them. Yes. You need to do both, I think. But then I guess if, if the child can't, if it's a two-handed task, and they can't do it with a one-handed approach, which they'll often revert to if it's easier. But if there's some tasks that you just can't do one-handed. Mm. Yeah. So, so there's sort of an impetus for them to practice if it's a task that's meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. yeah. So when the task isn't meaningful to them, but it's meaningful. 
The room is full of therapists who want to answer, <laughs> I think. <laughs> no, well, it has a lot to do with motivation. The, ta the, the task has to be fun and engaging, and they want, need to, want to do it, and they need to use both hands. That's the best way, I think, to have a house full of such toys. <laughs> and is it, is it self-care tasks that we tend to... It could be a developmental thing too, like it's only at certain ages things become important to yes. um, for the yeah, child. I think, I think they're often older. Yes. That is a challenge. It is yeah. a challenge, yes. But but uh, have some magnetic toys and, <laughs> and it, so he he does it as often as possible anyway. And I think his motivation will change over time for other activities. That's very hard as a parent, isn't it? Because you just want them to always use two hands. When we would typically use two hands, so as Lena was saying, it is more efficient to use one. That's what we all do. Yeah, and that's probably quite relevant and, and quite okay that he does the things he can do with one hand, but he, he needs to use both hands in many other activities. So I think it's positive that he, when he needs to, he can do. Yeah, that's really positive. Yeah. Yes. The max children with a unilateral disability, all most of them are in level one or two max, mm -hmm. and some in level three, three. Yeah. but quite few. Mm -hmm. So we don't use the whole span of max no. at all. And even though it's the mild, moderate, and severe, correlated with the level one, two. I'm sure it does, but but uh, it depends on what you how you define the mild. Yes, and I think that's it, because we don't have a clear definition for mild. mild no, usually they say that mild were pe children who could do a pincer grasp, grasp a little mm. thing like that, then they were mild <coughs> involved. Yeah. Do you know what the, the interest of the boy, the French boy was? 
Uh, no, I don't. Th uh, he might be a Max 3, yeah, or, or actually yeah. even Max 4, because he because didn't use yeah. the hand at all. Yeah, and then you look at what he's said at set, so it's not really the Lear movements that are more interesting. He's it is probably, and the Max is actually not looking at the hand function per se, but how they use their manual ability yeah. in daily life. So somebody who has a high capacity may score max level three or four because they're actually not using it in daily life because he had a beautiful capacity yes, didn't he yes he would score high on melbourne yes <laughs> on the melbourne test yes yeah Yeah, some, but uh, yeah, especially I think because his one good hand is disturbed by the other hand, so it makes it very hard for him to use both hands together. So that's where the, the disparity is, the two men And then you, you really can't do it too early because it takes a lot of mm. motivation and cognitive ability to, to explain this and to, to practice it in a good way. Any other questions? I think we'll finish there, Lena. Thank you so much. For thank you. And we'll thank you so oh. much for CRECP. <laughs>